When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen McCaff, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Avada Come On edition. It's Wednesday, August 3rd, 2016. On today's show, Stranger Things is the new limited series from Netflix. It stars Winona Ryder as a mother whose young son disappears under very Spielbergian circumstances. And then Harry Potter continues on in a two-part play. It's now up on London's West End. You probably can't make it to that, but you can download the script and read it. And finally, everyone hates the media, including, it turns out, the media. We discuss a giant New York Magazine package, the case against the media by the media, and we talk about the state of the American press. Joining me today is, uh, speaking of which, is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Nefarious perpetrator, Julia Turner. Hello. Yeah, you are the personification stand-in embodiment of the American press, so I hope you're ready to speak for it monolithically. Sure am. You guys, of course, are scot-free. Yes, exactly. Superlative. And, um, of course, Dana Stevens, who's the film critic of Slate. Uh, Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Julia, um, before we continue, I'm positive we're going to have business this week. Uh, we totally have business, Steve. First of all, our live show at the Mount has sold out. Thank you to everyone who bought tickets and is making the pilgrimage. It's going to be a really fun show. That's this coming Thursday night. Uh, Steve made an intemperate promise that if we sold out the show, we would take any hardy Culture Fest partisans on a hike. So we are going to be leading a hike of some kind the next morning. Uh, it'll be at 10 a.m. We expect it'll be done by 1231. We will dispatch details of its start off location at the show on Thursday evening. Uh, and we would be delighted to hike with you if you care to join for that. That is item one. Item two, we are still collecting questions for our questions and conundra show, which we will be recording on Friday on one of Steve's many porches. Where I hope we can do like a porch survey and choose the most optimal porch from which to record based on time both, permitting. Yeah. Based on yeah, I mean who can even you think you think Edith Wharton's got porches. Forget about <laughs> yeah. it. No, it's like a it's like a freaking Calvino novel or something. There's porch <laughs> upon porch, invisible porches, hanging porches. I love it. Buried porches. Glass porches, porches Glass made entirely porches. of rubber bands and piping. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah, um, the spirit of it. Yes. All right, got it. So uh, you can still submit questions. We've gotten a number of really amazing ones, including, I believe, recently, what same-sex celebrity do we lust after, which we may or may not <laughs> opt to answer. <laughs> <laughs> which one don't I lust after? <gasps> That's Steve's porch after dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we I'm not sure that'll get recorded on the mic. I, I don't think I'm going to show you that porch. <laughs> anyway, please continue to submit questions at the phone number which follows. That number is 201-890-3378. Again, that phone number is 201-890-3378. All right. Thank you so much for those. Uh, and finally, we have very sad news for us, which is that our beloved producer, Ann Happerman, who has made the show extremely wonderful and has been extremely wonderful to work with for several years now, uh, is moving on to different podcast projects. So we will miss her dearly. Uh, and that also means that we are on the hunt for a new producer for our show. So if you are a New York-based producer who would be interested in working on making the Culture Gab Fest even greater than it is today, we'd be very interested to hear from you. So email us at culturefest at slate.com with the word producer in the subject line uh, and uh, let us know of your interest and we will follow up from there. All right, Steve, let's commence. Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Stranger Things is the new Netflix streamer. It stars Winona Ryder as a mother in a rising panic about her missing middle school age son. Sweet, sensitive Will has disappeared mysteriously in the middle of the night and is now being avidly searched for by, in addition to his increasingly hysterical mother, his banana bike riding buddies and the town sheriff. 
and pretty much everybody in the town. The show is being praised as an homage to the early movies of Steven Spielberg. It's a mixture of, what would you say, Dana? What genres do we have going here? Well, that that's part of the fun of the show is that it keeps yeah. unfolding new ones, but definitely sci-fi, horror, suspense, and uh, what else? Who done it? I guess and like teen social pecking order, romance drama. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, middle school, middle school romance and drama. Yeah, all of the above. Brilliant. Let's listen to a clip. Yeah, and before we listen, we should just say this is uh, the sheriff played by David Harbor uh, interrogating the three best friends of the missing boy. She takes Okay, okay, okay. One at a time. All right, you. You said he takes what? Mirkwood. Mirkwood. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Mirkwood? I have not. That sounds made up to me. No, it's from Lord of the Rings. Well, the Hobbit. It doesn't matter. He asked. He asked. Hey, 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 what I just say? One at a damn time. You. Mirkwood, it's a real road. It's just the name that's made up. It's where Cornwallis and Curly meet. Yeah, all right, I think I know that. We can show you if you want. I said that I know it. We can help look. Yeah. No. Yeah, come on, Eric, you will. No, after school, you are all to go home immediately. That means no biking around looking for your friend, no investigating, no nonsense. This isn't some Lord of the Rings book. The Hobbit. All right, Dana, let me start with you. I mean, the show appears to me to be kind of a melange of uh, influences, mostly from the 1980s. Uh, how well do you think they blend? What do you make of this? Yeah, it is a strange melange, and its provenance is, is kind of odd, too, because unlike so many things that are on screens everywhere these days, it's not a reboot of something old, and it's not even based on an existing text. It's sort of inspired by Stephen King, by a series of Stephen Kingian stories and ideas. And the twins who made it, the Duffer brothers, they're Matt Duffer and Ross Duffer. These are two guys doing their first TV show. They made one movie together, a thriller called Hidden, and they worked together on uh, Wayward Pines, which is the sort of David Lynch-influenced series that we talked about a few months ago. Uh, they seem to be melding together a bunch of Spielbergian and Stephen Kingian ideas into this 80s brew, but they aren't basing it off of any one story, which is part of what makes this, this series, to me, which I'm loving so far, feel completely unpredictable. Even though many of the things that happen in it seem to have been borrowed from other cultural sources, you have no idea episode to episode which path it's going to go down. Are you, are you guys finding that as well? Well, uh, let me begin by saying I love all of its influences. The Spielberg of Close Encounters, uh, you know, vividly on display. Um, you know, the Rob Reiner, Stephen King collaboration, Stand By Me, one of my favorite movies from that era. John Carpenter. I mean, it's kind of all in there. The, quest the question I have a few episodes in, first of all, I'm going to watch it to the end and avidly, um, but whether um, they, they really blend comfortably. I mean, they're wearing their influences so ostentatiously in a way. And to the point I'm at in the story, um, I'm not quite sure what the what the commanding thread is going to be or how they're all going to be braided together um, elegantly. But I like the performances. I like the writing. I like the directing. And I love, I love the frame of reference. Julia, what do you, what do you make of it? Ugh, you guys, I'm so crippled. I'm like the, in the same way that Dana has game aphasia. I have like scary thing. Like I just listened to it. I, I was watching it on home alone. And just like <laughs> was too, um, it is not my idea of fun to be startled and, concerned on my <laughs> That's couch. That's so funny because my life partner went scurrying out of the room the minute the first spooky chords began. So I, I sympathize and, and recognize your plight. But I do feel like this this show, would you agree with me, Stephen, that this does this show does a good job of modulating the scares? I mean, it's not gory. Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. out. It doesn't do jump scares. It's not out to make everybody sweaty and shrieky. It's more it's more about the, the vague foreboding. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing that it reminded me of a lot is Super 8, which is the sort of 80s Spielberg homage supernatural thriller with heart and a very well-executed eye for period detail and the the joys and troubles of family and friend relationships, uh, which was also good, but totally forgettable to me. Uh, you know, has not made an indelible impression in my mind. And this, I, the tone here, I think, is a little bit interesting. I mean, the the... Spielberg cut with Stephen King is like more interesting and macabre than just plain Spielberg, I think. And the the 
ways in which this continues to get darker and weirder. And Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, it has not yet doesn't feel that it has yet settled on a storyline in the first two hours of the show. Right. It's Mm -hmm. constantly like a new thing is happening and there seems to be a new kind of creature or scare or obsession or, um, you know, malevolent tendency on the part of the characters. And so that the unruliness that a serial narrative over multiple hours allows versus a tidy, you know, 90 to 120 minute feature might allow this to go weirder places than that. But I am somewhat left feeling like, okay, but like, what's the point exactly? Why are we here? Mm -hmm. Uh, Spielberg is just, to my mind, was just a master of focus and centering his effects, which he was also a technical master of, right? Just an absolute master with the camera and the pacing uh, and, um, and mood. Uh, of a of a narrative of a cinematic narrative but he also knew in his golden age he knew how to center a story so if you rewatch jaws you know it's absolutely about the corruptions of a small town you know looking to make a buck off the beach as much as it's about this menacing shark in the water close encounters which i think is his best movie and, and arguably one of the best Hollywood movies ever made is about ufo's which were very trendy when spielberg pitched the movie but then he made um, a supremely confident movie about what amounts to a father's nervous breakdown, um, and um, and and at the heart of it is is Richard Dreyfuss's kind of mental and emotional life coming apart at the seams and looking for this you know transcendent transcendent intervention from space in the form of the UFOs. You know, similarly, E.T. like kids who feel sort of stranded and and. Uh, alone in their domestic life, find the perfect companion, but will eventually have to relinquish them. I mean, every one of them has an emotional center around which all of the effects um, cohere. And I guess so far, a lot of the people, including J.J. Abrams in Super 8 and now the Duffer Brothers in Stranger Things, their love of Spielberg and that era of movie making is so deep and so sincere. I'm not sure what they're drawing from their own lives that gives it the pathos or the heart that Spielberg gave to his films. Is that a fair criticism, Dana? I mean, I guess, but it's sort of like saying, you know, why can't these two 35-year-old TV producers making their very first series be Steven Spielberg I guess so, but Spielberg was a freaking wonderkin. I mean, he made Jaws when he was, what, 24 years old? I mean, it has nothing to do with age. I think it just has, it has everything to do, I I really am not trying to denigrate anybody's talents. It has more to do with where you come kind of in the cycle of an aesthetic. And if you're very early on, you just, Spielberg was, of course, drawing on all kinds of movies from his past, but, but really was sort of inventing a new, kind of film, you know, the modern blockbuster. And so he had to draw from real life. He couldn't draw so exclusively from from movies. Also, we, you know, these are people who've grown up in the age of first home viewing, right, uh, via the DVD or the VCR. But then in the age of the internet, when all images are always a finger, you know, fingertip away. And so there is this sense of kind of, um, it's almost a mixed, you know, playlist quality uh, to the aesthetic in a way. But I would argue that this show does have some, you know, emotional heart. I mean, it does. It is very citational. I, I agree with that. But I found it, I also found it very scary at times and extremely moving. And Winona Ryder's performance as this mother who arguably is going off the deep end, right? There start to be some questions a few episodes in as to whether she's mentally ill or whether she's actually communicating with her missing son. I don't think that's giving away too much. So there's this, there's this period of us kind of witnessing and identifying with Winona Ryder's intense attachment to her son, but then also starting to back away slowly from how overly intense her character has gotten. And that's, that's all, I think, all very nicely done and kind of, to me, was emotionally riveting. Uh, Yeah, and I also think the relationships among the boys, the sort of band of, you know, wouldn't look out of place in in the background of Stand By Me uh, boys who are the protagonists, sort of these four, well, three after one goes missing, outcasts who are bullied and play Dungeons and Dragons, or so I gleaned some kind of Dungeons and Dragons-esque game with characters and dice and uh, fantasy fireballs and stuff. Their interactions and their interactions with a new and surprising character they meet in the show um, are also engrossing. And their dynamics, I think, are well drawn, as are in general the dynamics of the teens in the town. I mean, it's sort of like spooky freaks and geeks. And that that actually was part that felt um, fresh to me or slightly distinctive. I, I liked that thread of it. Obviously, that's a trope too, you know, the, the teens in the house with the scary thing and who's going to get murdered first. But the specificity and tenderness of the individual relationships that are depicted 
I found engrossing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something that Spielberg does really, really well, and that I think actually the Duffer brothers are carrying off very well in this show, too, which is create child characters in a suspense narrative that are actual people, that are actual children, and not just bait for the monster or symbolic things to lose for the grown-ups. And I think way too often in, in adult media, media that's made for adults, children become these symbolic tokens, right? Like, my child means tenderness, or my child means this or that, because they're going to go missing. And even in this narrative, which is about a missing child and, and other people that go missing later on too. These three kids are actual personalities and very funny personalities. I particularly love, I don't know how you describe him, but the comic relief kid with the missing teeth mm-hmm. and the curly mm-hmm. hair who's sort of slightly out of it all the time. He's, just, he's a great character, beautifully drawn, played by an actual child, not a teenager trying to pass as a child. And I like that whole part of the show. All right. I'm totally convinced it's good. Um, and I'm going to stick with it happily to the end. Um, Julia, there's such a citational virtuosos but I suppose I won't let that distract me. I take it you're going to watch this through um, your fingers, uh, but all the way to the end. Fuck no. <laughs> it's too scary. <laughs> really? No, I don't care what happens to these kids. I'll read about it on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does, the whole project does raise a question for me. I mean, I, if it weren't scary and I didn't feel like I w- was interested in spending less time feeling anxious about the world. I I get that some people like watching anxiety-producing productions as a release for the anxieties of watching the news cycle, but that's not what I'm in the mood for at the moment. But it does raise a question for me. I feel like usually when we're decrying the lack of originality in a cultural production that we're critiquing and discussing on the show, we are talking about movies and talking about, not entirely, but sort of talking about how the movie production process seems broken and everything's a remake and a reboot. And can you find originality within the strictures of of reanimating an old project? And I had trouble thinking of a thing in TV that we'd watched that was so clearly competent and beautiful and well-acted and engrossing and interesting and well-made that yet still didn't feel to me like it had any particular pertinence or urgency. I mean, even just in comparing it to The Night Of, which also is like a well-made procedural, a genre we've seen before, and various other references that were embedded in it, something about the questions that it raises about police forces and race and terrorism and race in America make that feel like an interesting, useful show to watch now. Whereas this just kind of feels like lost, you know, like a sort of a pile of metaphysical hooey that's very well made. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I don't, it's like the bar for TV is just so confusing. It's like, why shouldn't I be excited about the extreme excellence of this production, even if it doesn't strike me as particularly original? But I'm just not. Maybe I've, maybe I've become a too, uh, too discerning and dainty with peak television's excellent bonbons. Well, it also seems like you don't like horror. This is not your genre. It's not something that is going to give you anything, even if you do watch it till the end. So why should you? You don't need more anxiety in your life. (laughs) All right. Deal. All right. This thing is called Stranger Things. It stars Winona Ryder. It's Panicky Mom. Um, It's on Netflix. Check it out. We're very curious to know what you think because um, I don't think we're we're an ambivalent panel. Um, uh, so come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us tell us what you thought. All right, moving on. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is a play. It's now open on London's West End. It's also a two-part script. You can purchase it, download it from Amazon. Go ahead and read it. This may hit your Potter Jones, or maybe it'll make it worse. Because to begin with, well, it's not even a novel. It's a play, of course. And secondly, it's not written by J.K. Rowling. It's by a playwright named Jack Thorne from a story by Rowling and others by Thorne and one other person. Um, It takes place 19 years after the action of the last Harry Potter novel. And um, it's a second generation tale starring Albus Potter and Scorpius Malfoy. I introduce now Forrest Wickman, senior editor, uh, culture editor for Slate.com. Forrest, I'm going to bring you in quick and early on this because I have to admit, I've read parts of all of the Harry Potter books and admired them enormously, seen two or three of the movies. They've played a huge role in my kid's life. But truthfully, I've never read a Harry Potter cover to cover. And so I found this play doinking up against my ignorance repeatedly and kind of falling (laughs) inert to the floor. Um, which isn't to say it's not great and it wouldn't have been um, more beloved, but you are a Potterian, so let me hand it off to you. What did you, you've read the play, um, uh, let's start concretely, um, what, what did you make of, what did you make of it as a, 
Harry Potter installment. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, really your fault um, that it fell flat for you. I really enjoyed reading it. I found it to be a great way to spend a rainy afternoon, um, and I kind of couldn't put it down. And I found it really wonderful to be back with these characters. But it just does not compare very favorably to the novels, which are really well written and have like lots of really fun and difficult to figure out mysteries and also lots of um, just kind of day to day fun kind of school story fiction stuff. Um, And we should say that the play has gotten great reviews. There are all sorts of parts in the script where when you're reading the script and then the stage directions say something like, and it looks magical and it's terrifying. And I found that a really frustrating like thing to read. And, you know, just reading that it's magical isn't enough to make it magical in your imagination. But I'm excited to see how they actually pulled off staging all this stuff. You know, it's funny that you say that because I always said about the movies, I reviewed many of the Harry Potter movies, I think probably the last four or five of them. And, and I always thought that the magic battles were really boring on screen, but they're f- fantastic in the books. It's just it's, it's much better to have a prose description of your wand lightning beating someone else's wand lightning than it actually looks on a screen. And that's on a screen with CGI and special effects. So it is kind of fascinating to imagine how it would be staged. In a way, I almost feel like the simplest staging would be the best to, to, to make the artifice kind of evident. And I don't want to give away what any of the magic tricks are and how I envision them, but it seems like the lower tech possible would, would be the most interesting. Yeah, reading the script, I had visions of this being like a Harry Potter Spider-Man where all of the stunts and tricks and like and then a face appears from the past and then uh, and then a wall moves and then somebody's wearing fluttering wings just being like cut like a whole succession of oh there's flying there's also flying yeah. uh, which as we know from the Angels in America oral history we did flying's always bad on stage don't fly don't put flying I think there's a note there was a note that they flagged add three weeks to production tech time if you want to have anybody fly like it will always fuck you up um, but yes I spent a lot of the reading experience thinking about the how of this production and being having the same sensation as like slipping into my old worn lamb's wool slippers of like how comfy to be in the presence of these beloved characters who, you know, really sprang with great originality from J.K. Rowling's brain and entertained me for so many hours in the books, which I truly adored and in the movies, which were seemed fine. Um, But man, this is like a warmed over pile of mush. Like there's nothing to this story. The story is, uh, almost like a choose-your-own-adventure through the past world of Harry Potter. It adds this next generation um, and adds some conflicts between the next generation and the past generation. I think we won't spoil the play beyond what's been mentioned in many, many reviews, but the play centers on the frustrations of one of Harry's future sons with his wife, Ginny Weasley, who he's named Albus Severus Potter, And uh, Albus gets sorted when he goes to Hogwarts into Slytherin, quickly becomes friends with Draco Malfoy's son, Scorpius, uh, and feels alienated from his father and his father's legacy um, and the legend and lore surrounding his father who saved the world in ways that make him and his dad sad and then plot ensues. <laughs> and it's, the plot is basically the plot of Back to the Future 2. As many, as I thought while reading this, and then found it in Dan Coyce's great review on Slate, and then found that it was in, like, every review, because it is exactly <laughs> the right analogy. Julia, I wanted to have that feeling of sliding into comfy J.K. Rowling slippers and settling down by the fire with this play, but I, it doinked off of me and fell on the floor, too. And I'm right in the middle of reading the books out loud to my daughter, going back to the beginning and reading them out loud to her from the beginning. So I was very, very into this sort of fan service part of it. But I feel like this play sort of fails even as fan service, maybe not staged, but certainly on the page. It just I didn't feel like I was with those same characters. I felt like I was with Ersatz versions of them, you know, written by like the Star Trek novelization writer or something. Oh, that's you know? so dreary. I mean, I have to say, though, I was never an obsessed fan. I was always a sort of huge, unreserved admirer of what she'd done. Every time I encountered it, including going to that Harry Potter world thing outside of London with my kids, which enchanted me as much as them. I mean, the whole thing, if I had to pick one word that always sprang to mind every time I encountered the Harry Potter universe, it was dignified that she just, she'd, she'd created something magnificent. She'd enchanted pretty much every child on the globe. She'd, 
pulled many kids who wouldn't otherwise have found themselves in the interior of a book into the interior of a book. Uh, I thought she she wrote beautifully. She imagined it even more beautifully. I thought it was just wonderful. It was just dignified through and through and through. Uh, it seems to me this is so out of keeping with all the rest of her work. I mean, and, and her attitude towards her work, especially in that, you know, now the preeminent, the preeminently profitable thing in the entertainment world to create is a world, right? Like the Marvel universe is a universe that people feel enormous affection and almost nostalgia for, and they want to re-enter it regardless of what product exactly is you know, delivering it to them. So, you know, you can sort of spin off the Marvel Universe into infinity. You can recreate and reboot Star Wars and God knows any other franchise, and you keep giving people access points to the universe. The wonderful thing about Harry Potter is it had that it had that as a feature without it being a business model or ever feeling to me especially like a business model. Um, and this breaks with that past. Does anyone else feel a aura of disenchantment uh, around this? Disenchantment is a very apt word. I, I was thinking about why this fails, and it has multiple authors. It's J.K. Rowling and two others, so uh, who knows what the actual writing process was like. But I want to float a theory, inevitably half-baked because of uh, because I am not a student of the theater, um, but a theory about what a good play typically does well and what J.K. Rowling's particular novels do well and float the argument that perhaps there's just a formal mismatch here. Because I think great plays are about dialogue and they're about characters talking to each other and working out uh, differences or ideas or a conflict or a family or a relationship or a secret through what they say and how they debate back and forth. And the, the process of writing a great scene for the theater, I think, is often the process of writing minds interchanging and moving each other towards some new conclusion. And I do not think the Harry Potter world or books are known for their scintillating dialogue. And in fact, what they're much better at is uh, description of, of fantastical worlds and then interiority. I think the description of how Harry Potter characters felt throughout those seven books is um, often very simply and directly put. If I'm remembering correctly, it's there's not a lot of show don't tell there's a decent amount of telling i think harry potter felt this way this you know he 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 was subjected and sad and he slumped in his seat but also he he was made to feel this way by the actions of hermione or whoever else so you've got great interiority of these characters you've got great worlds but their conversations with each other are like dopey and sometimes they misunderstand each other you know there's kind of like stupid misunderstandings like it's it's i i think that the conversation is the least sophisticated part of the books and yet all we're left here with is conversation and then stage directions for magic that seems impossible to render productively on a stage when you're reading the script although apparently given the reviews is delightfully effective yeah, I mean, I think I remember the conversations in the book somewhat more fondly, but it's I, I, going into this, you know, I had um, some concerns about expanding the Harry Potter universe uh, in, in kind of the mode that you're talking about, Steve. But another part of me thought, oh, this is going to be really cool. We're going to see a playwright bring his own uh, set of skills and particular and in particular his way with snappy dialogue to this world. And we've seen that with a lot of the kind of recent franchise expansions. You get some unexpected director to come into Mission Impossible or the Marvel movies or the Star Wars movies and put their own stamp on it. And in this, like, I couldn't make out much of a stamp from this playwright beyond, like, even doinkier, doinky <laughs> dialogue. I mean, I, this one passage I wrote down, we talked about Albus and Scorpius. Scorpius. Albus says, do you think I've been tested too? I have, haven't I? Scorpius responds, no, not yet. And then like 30 pages later, Scorpius says, you wanted a test, Albus. This is it. And we're going to pass it. Like, <laughs> And part of that, I think, is just that there's so much plot um, that they really have to just like, focus on that and and less on the character stuff. 
but it's just so clunky. Like, well, I mean, like let's let's give some credit to J.K. Rowling here. You know, maybe it's 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 the part of the problem is that she's not the one writing the dialogue. I know when yeah. I read the books out loud to my daughter, we sort of read them as a drama. I read the narration, but I'll usually say, "Who do you want to be tonight?" You know, and she always wants to be Hermione. She sometimes wants to be Ron too, and we'll take on characters and read them in different voices. And I don't know. I never found any shortcomings in J.K. Rowling's dialogue, even if that's not the strongest part of the book. It certainly doesn't drag it down. So, I mean, I feel like if she had been allowed to do a pass as script doctor on this, maybe it would sparkle a bit more. Well, and in the books, there's lots of time for just the friends talking about being friends and like who they have a crush on and and, you know, whether they're going to pass that test in Defense Against the Dark Arts or whatever. And in this, like in a way similar to some of the movies, all of that has been stripped out so that you kind of only get the plot and you get dialogue as plot delivery. And I just didn't find that very satisfying. Hmm. All right. Well, um, I imagine the spectacle of it maybe carries it over better on stage. But um, on the page, uh, a little doinky. Um, it's Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. You can download it on Amazon or you can uh, break open your piggy bank and fly to London and see it there. Um, but let us know what you think or of you it. Or you can support and, uh, your local bookstore. Go yes, buy it. No, I, exactly <laughs> right. Go to your bookstore. What am I saying? Um, and buy a hard copy. I like um, pronouncing it cursed. I like I, I like that, adding that little. Uh, is there an accent grave over the e? That's how I always. I, 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 it's how I've been pronouncing show. it in my head for like months now. Uh-huh. And I actually recently realized, like, wait, why do I do that? So you guys say, and the cursed child. I don't know. I hadn't said it out loud to myself in my own head. I'm now realizing. I think. I think you know, Steve. You can rule on this, but I think it's more iambic if you use cursed. It's definitely better, cursed child. Uh, it's something. it's less doinkier alright well tell us what you think of Harry Potter and what you think of the cursed or cursed child at uh, facebook.com slash culturefest Forrest Wickman thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about this thanks for having me the public blames a salacious media for creating Donald Trump meanwhile Donald Trump blames a liberal media for inhibiting his political chances round and round it goes polls now show that the public hates the media more or less as much as it ever has Um, but is the media intrinsically hateful New York Magazine conducted a survey of 113 media professionals they interviewed 40 journalists to try to figure out whether the media deserves its soured reputation they called their package the case against the media by the media Julia the obvious place to start here is with you. Um, having read through it, uh, pick out what you think the through line is of this indictment of the media, um, and then tell me whether you think it's legitimate or not. And um, what is it about the culture of journalists that conduces to self-examination that borders on neurotic self <laughs> um, <laughs> Are you saying that you identified a through line in this package, Steve? I'm I'm saying I didn't and hoping to God that you did. Um, I did not. And I have a couple theories about this package. But my primary response to this piece was to be intrigued by the concept of it. Um, and then I began to read it and thought, oh, wow, I've had all these conversations 47 times. These are very familiar critiques if you're a working journalist who's ever talked to other working journalists about what's good and bad about the current state of journalism, which then led me to the thought, who is the audience for this? Are there a bunch of people who spend less time on those debates who would be excited and interested to read them put forth in this kind of lively, discursive manner? Uh, and so I throw the question back to you and Dana. Stephen, Dana, did you find this to be an interesting or illuminating critique of the media by the media? Well, I mean, for one thing, it's impossible to identify a through line in it by its very structure, right? I mean, it's almost sort of like an oral history of the media by the media, where it is, breaks down to a series of long quotes from different bigwigs in the media, people, everyone from David Simon to who are some of the big names in there? David Simon, Bill Mark Marshall, Dean Bacay, our own Dahlia Lithwick is in it several times and is as lively and delightful and pointed as ever. Um, uh, some of New York's heavy hitters, Frank Rich, Jonathan Chait, Rebecca Traster, various types. So they all, I mean, they sometimes, in fact, their, their quotes seem to be put together next to each other because they contradict each other. You know, it, it feels like a sort of maybe over-familiar if you're in the world of journalism, but a clamorous conversation in which many different viewpoints are being floated, and it would sort of be impossible to identify an argument. Yes. I mean, there's also, the part of the problem is that you've got two extremes, one of which is, to my mind, an almost know-nothing and reflexive hatred of the media by the public that tends to view the media as debased, 
um, and and operating kind of in monolithic terms, uh, and and somehow not delivering the public service that the public, if it were to self-examine, would have to admit it doesn't actually really want, right? And then the other extreme is, you know, insiders talking, you know, uh, about insider baseball with one another in the terms that they commonly use. And it's funny, I it's you know, and and it sort of oscillates, you know, a little bit uncoordinatedly between those two extremes and neither one of them is all that illuminating. I mean, this, the public critique of the media as, as, you know, self-interested, salacious, debased on and on goes back all the way to the beginning of, you know, the invention of anything like a modern media Um, and the kind of new grub street, you know, we all know that what we do is we don't really service truth, Um, you know, has always been part of the inside baseball of the media. I just don't. And between these two, where does wisdom emerge, really? I mean, I, right? Isn't the banal generalization that we'd probably all settle on that, you know, in the age of the internet, there's an, you know, you know, kind of a mind-boggling diversity of voices. That means that all kinds of new and unexpected things get said. There's room for people to write uh, deep, interesting. Um, work without having to go through a traditional gatekeeper to put it in front of the public. At the same time, the bar has never been lower, and therefore, you know, if you're if you're only interested in finding things that mirror back to you your own opinions in the most um, you know vitriolic and troll like way, you'll find that too. So there's good and there's bad and there's a lot in between. But boy, that's just not much of a conclusion to come to. Yeah, if I had been conceiving of or editing this package, which stipulated I did not do. So props to New York for all the work that went into it. But to me, the question that makes the state of the media newly pertinent and perhaps of interest to a broader group of people than the usual set of self-flagellating journalists is this charge that's been levied against the media in this election cycle, which is that the media is somehow responsible for Trump. And a lot of people seem to think that the media is to blame for the rise of Trump. And I think that is a question which is Interesting. I do not believe that to be true. I think that's like a cheap and lazy way to assess what's happened with this election cycle. But I think the media dynamics surrounding the rise of Trump from his tenure as a reality show star to the way in which his early campaign was covered to the way in which the data journalists covered him and or underestimated his threat to the distance that the media has from the kinds of voters who currently support Trump, um, you know, to the current vigor with which Every mainstream media organization is attempting to tear Trump down because they see him as a mendacious threat to civilization. Uh, That is the fascinating swirl of topics about which, although I have a strong view on one side, I think there is real debate. And I felt when I was reading that chunk of this, I'll call it an article, compendium maybe, for lack of a more compact term, um, if you would reframe this as, is the media to blame for Trump, and then all of the same smart set of people assess that question. That seemed to me like the richest and most pertinent and interesting part of the package. And I did come away feeling both, you know, vindicated that a bunch of smart media people agree with me that the sort of free media theory of Trump's rise is a little simple and easy, but also prompted to think more critically about the way that media conceives of its audience and the seeming unbridgeability of the distinct and discrete audiences for media these days, which I think is part of the problem. So I feel like the narrower debate among these experts around this question of how media and the Trump campaign and the campaign apparatus generally at this point in our republic interface was of interest. Right. Because otherwise, if the question you pose is, hey, person in the media, what do you think of the media? Everything is being painted with such a broad brush that it's basically a roller painting your wall, right? It's, it's, it's way to even to even put television, print, you know, online journalism, podcast, radio, everything under the umbrella of media and then try to say something about it. It's, it's, it's already too big. I mean, I, I agree that Trump would have given the moment we're in be the best question to, to open this up with. But almost anything more specific would have been superior to mm-hmm. what it is. Dana, why don't we each pick out maybe one thing from this gigantic um, package that we found most illuminating? Do you have something in mind? I don't know. I mean, of course, I love what Dahlia Lithwick has to say um, because I love Dahlia Lithwick. And she has a lot to say about 
what aspects of the Supreme Court should be covered as opposed to those which are covered, right? And how quickly um, the, the coverage of the Supreme Court devolves into kind of a, a personality circus and stops covering the actual cases. But there's a little, little quote that she gives that just makes gives you a sort of a behind the scenes glimpse at journalism in the making that really stuck with me and that seems very germane to the to this question of how to cover this bizarre election. She says, Court reporters will say, ugh, I can't believe this is even in court. And then they write a piece that's like, in a spirited debate, both sides, <laughs> right? And that's something that you see all over coverage of the, the Clinton-Trump election as well, right? That, I mean, Donald Trump will say something that's utterly and completely batshit insane, right? And then Hillary will, whatever, make some some gaffe or make some sort of normal, have a normal politician's day of campaigning. And the two things will be presented as if they're somehow equal and opposite parts of the same scale. I mean, that's a great point of Dahlia's. And that's part of why Dahlia's Supreme Court writing for us is so terrific, is that she she dispenses with that bullshit. But she I, does say, Ugh, I can't believe this is in court. Yeah. But I also think what we've seen We've seen a significant shift on that on the one hand. On the other hand, is um, in media in the last 10 years, I think, spurred first by climate coverage and then by vaccine coverage uh, and that the training that the media has had and how to not emphasize false equivalencies over the past 10 years spurred probably by criticism from the Internet and the fact that it's not just a few voices anymore, you know, giving like too much airtime to climate crazies in the pages of the the national newspapers um, has trained the media corps for this exact situation, this election where we do not have two equivalent candidates. We have um, a deeply flawed but fundamentally mainstream and qualified candidate from the Democrats and a dangerous loony on the right. And uh, many, many very conservative mainstream outlets are just calling a spade a spade in this election in a way that is both, I think, commendable and also will only reinforce the impression that voters who are inclined to support Trump have that media is out to get them and their kind. So it is sort of this reinforcing cycle where some of the things that are described in this package are starting to change, but those changes will only beget some of the other problems described in the package. As for me, Steve, I think the thing I think is most interesting is the Trump stuff I mentioned earlier about how media groups can connect with the kinds of readers and listeners and audiences who are inclined to distrust them. But mm-hmm. um, I'm curious what you thought was a, a takeaway insight from this sprawl. Uh, well, two things, two things very quickly. One was I thought Stephen Brill had a very, very revealing anecdote where he goes on TV on Crossfire to have a debate with Arlen Specter about whether there should be cameras in the Clinton impeachment. And as Specter gets to the close of his opening statement, to the end of his opening statement, Brill decides he agrees with him and says so. And the producer screams in his ear, you can't do that. You can't do that. And, you know, the the point of the show wasn't to illuminate um, or get to the truth. The point of the show is to have um, uh, a conflict. And it, it, the more angry and the more... Um, you know, over the top, the better. And it made for bad TV that, you know, a reasoned, a reasoned conclusion had been reached. Um, and that apparently really stayed with Brill. It really hit me. The second thing I'll say is that if you scroll, it's not in the content of the package itself, but if you scroll down to the right to the most viewed stories right now on New York Magazine, number one, Trump says that if Ivanka were sexually harassed at work, he'd like to think she'd find another career. Number two, Republicans stick with Trump as he drags out toxic con food. Number three, The Bachelorette, season 12. Number four, Donald Trump. Uh, on and on and on. Um, the public likes to think of the media as this gigantic, totally self-interested mothership dividing its time between New York and L.A. and acting against its, the public's, best interest, when in fact what the media really is is a giant mirror up to the public's proclivities and tastes. And it's a business like any other. It wouldn't survive if it weren't giving the public essentially what the public wanted. And until that act of introspection happens, you know, uh, the media is going to continue to produce salacious, you know, material about trivial things. I, I just, unfortunately for me, that's kind of the bottom line. Well, I get her, I better get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> she has tawdry stories to chase. Can I, can I actually say something quickly just to, as we wrap? Um, I, I really did like that story, the Stephen Brill story you mentioned, Steve. And I, I really think that part of running Slate, which is a magazine of argument and opinion and fundamentally a magazine of persuasion, right? Like the idea is to rigorously marshal evidence in order to make arguments that might change somebody's mind about something. I am perhaps naive about that, but I feel like that's an important part of our mission here. And it's an interesting mission to try and have in this campaign cycle where 
the the uh, careful consideration of the views of the um, side you don't you aren't necessarily inclined to agree with is made more difficult by the nature of the person that side has nominated. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I do I do think that the fragmentation of the media landscape is actually to the good because I think mm-hmm. even though market forces, including social media, have a cheapening and simplifying and deadening effect, I think the sheer diversity and ease of publishing is making many more kinds of stories available, and that's to the good. And as as is the pressure on from social media, right, to um, to tell stories that were not told before. And I think very few people could argue that you know the the connection of social media and Black Lives Matter is not something good that has come out of the diversification of media. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all of that. It's never been better to be, you know, a smart per- person looking for smart content. Unfortunately, it's never been better for a dumb person looking for dumb content. But <laughs> uh, uh, all right, the the package from New York Magazine is the case against the media by the media. Uh, it is actually fascinating. Uh, it's sprawling. Check it out. Come and tell us what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day. Nah, what do you have? Well, since we were just talking about media and objectivity and where journalists should stand on the election and so forth, I guess I will just use my little bully pulpit right now for a moment of pure advocacy. And this actually is, although it's political, sort of a cultural endorsement because it was a moment I had this this week that turned around my whole thinking about the culture, the political culture and where it's at right now. Um, and some people who follow me on Twitter may know about this, but I had this this moment this weekend when all this stuff was happening with the Khan family and just these like these just absolutely grotesque kind of battles happening in the media between this military family that had lost a son and the Donald Trump campaign where I was taking a shower and I was crying in the shower, uh, just in despair, just in anxiety and fear about where our country is going and what's happening to us and all of that. I'm just feeling like, you know, feeling like you're in Germany in the 30s or whatever. And then I, it, for some reason, it resolved in my mind into this kind of like fierce <laughs> euphoria state, which I'm still in, which is just that we are not going to let it happen. I just was doing the math in my mind and thinking, you know what? There are more of us than there are of them, you know? I mean, there are more, if only the people that Donald Trump has insulted vote for him, if every person that he's insulted, all the women, all the Muslims, all the Mexicans, all the people of color, right, immigrants, now military vets and their families, apparently, if all of these folks got together who he has just actually heaped shit on, vote against him, he will be crushed in a landslide. So my endorsement this week is that everybody, whether or not you like her as a candidate, go to HillaryClinton.com and figure out a way to volunteer for her campaign, whether it's donating $5. If you live in a swing state, maybe you can go register people to vote. If you don't live in a swing state, maybe you can road trip to one, as I plan to do maybe with some friends later this fall and see what needs to be done. Man a table, drive old ladies to the polls, figure out what you can do to help get Hillary Clinton elected. If you're a Bernie Sanders person and you're really disappointed, great. Use your grassroots organizing skills to try to keep what I consider to be basically a force of evil, as close to pure evil as we've ever had, running for the most important office in our country out of office. So that is my endorsement, is that instead of sitting around wringing your hands in the shower like me, (laughs) you should take it upon yourself to act like someone who's at historic moment, which we are. And somebody actually during the Republican convention, when, you know, lots of people were sort of tweeting in despair, sent something around that really energized me, which was sort of saying, look, you people are living in a historic moment. Take advantage of it and be actors in that moment and not just act it upon. So that's my endorsement for the week. All right. You're here. Um, Julia, what do you have? I have to circulate to Dana Slate's policies on journalists uh, contributing to <laughs> and participating in political campaigns. But we can talk about that offline. But our movie critics, journalists, we can have that discussion. <laughs> um, I would like to endorse a great read that will take your mind off of your troubles and Dana's shower tears. Uh, close listeners to the Slate podcast universe may have noted that Noreen Malone and I uh, of the Double X Gab Fest are engaged in a kind of endorsement race where we frequently like the same thing at different times. And somebody should do a chart of how many things which of us has liked first. Occasionally I beat her, but she's so culturally savvy that often she beats me. Several months ago, she endorsed a book called Sweet Bitter, which is a novel set in like 2006 or so in New York. Uh, It's about a young girl who comes to the city and becomes a uh, backwaiter in a shishi restaurant kitchen that feels like it's maybe based on the Union Square Cafe. And um, the book is not without flaws, but it's a really good read, particularly if you are a restaurant 
aficionado, partisan, or connoisseur of any kind. Like the specificity of the hierarchies of a shishi restaurant operation and its rhythms and its staff and how they work and how they interact and how they view the guests and uh, how they think about the food are were just totally delectable to this person who used to spend a, some amount of time going to interesting restaurants in New York City and who now uh, like makes peanut butter and jelly on the couch. But... <laughs> But I don't know. It's just like a really – the world is really good. The plot is a little less good and it drags a bit at the end. But the world is really, really vivid. So if you've ever been interested in restaurants or if you spent time in or moved to New York in and around the mid-aughts, the particularity of this book's vision is totally worth signing up for. So the the novel, again, is called Sweet Bitter. Excellent. All right. Well, this week I'm going to endorse a movie. Dana, I'm really curious what your interactions with it have been uh, over the years. It's called A Letter to Three Wives. Yes. Know it and love it. I want to hear, ah. hear, hear your take. Excellent. Well, um, a little background. So it's the movie that Joseph Mankiewicz wrote and directed before he wrote and directed All About Eve, a movie that film buffs remember um, more readily than this one. He won, actually, the Academy Awards for if I understand correctly, for screenplay and director for both movies, I think in consecutive years or something. Anyway, it's a 1949 movie. Um, It's kind of a romantic comedy, but with interestingly sort of socially sophisticated and troubled themes. It's about adultery and social class in ways that you cannot quite believe a 1940s movie is about. It's very, very sharply written, performed, and directed. It has, among other people in it, Anne Southern and Kirk Douglas and Linda Darnell. It's um, really, really smart. It's Essentially, the, the conceit of the movie, very quickly, is it's uh, a lot of it is told with a voiceover of a woman who has written a letter, an unseen woman, who's written a letter to one of three wives, um, and we're not sure which, we see into the domestic lives of each of the three, telling them that she has run away with one of their husbands, and we don't know until the end of the film which which one it is. Um, a terrific movie, great Joseph Mankiewicz joint, um, really, really highly recommended. It's probably streaming somewhere. Uh, find it, uh, watch it, discover it, and please tell me what you think of it. Um, that sounds so good, Steve. I've somehow never seen that movie. I will add it to my list. Although we should note here, actually, that we had posted on social media that we were planning to discuss Manchurian Candidate and, and Idiocracy, two old movies pertinent to current campaign events uh, on future shows. And we are still planning to discuss Idiocracy this week at the Mount. We thought Edith Wharton would appreciate that. Uh, but Manchurian Candidate we had to skip this week because it was not streaming and we couldn't get a copy. So we will likely still discuss that at some point during this campaign cycle, but it won't be for the next couple of weeks uh, just for logistical reasons. Superb. Yeah, no, I can't wait to talk about that in light of current events. Uh, Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Dana, thanks a lot. That was fun. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Well, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out the entire roster of Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.